Hi everybody. I miss being with you all. Uh, we're doing the best that we can. It's been encouraging to see uh, just all the different ways that we've been connecting. Home group has been uh, an adventure through FaceTime and Zoom and uh, all the other ways that we've been gathering together. Uh, I hope that you are drawing near to the Lord in these days. And I've been praying every day for our church that God would continue to strengthen us, strengthen our relationships with each other. Um, and I know that He's doing that. I have, I have every faith that He is protecting us, protecting the thing, protecting the work that He is doing in our church and building us together. Uh, we were planted coming up on two years ago. Uh, on Easter, it will be two years ago. And the Lord has done amazing things. I have, I'm, I'm standing in my office at home. I have here a, a picture. Actually, I'm going to grab it for you. This is a picture of our very first Sunday together. And I don't know if you can see everybody in uh, the picture, but it's pretty small. Uh, there's a few babies who are no longer babies. Um, and uh, so I look at this all the time and I'm just full of gratitude uh, for the thing that God has done among us as Emmanuel Christian Fellowship. And so we come to the Word tonight uh, with full hearts and expectation. Um, I hope that you, you've been preparing a little bit for tonight. Either you worship with your family or prayed with those that you're, that you're with. Um, and, uh, but, but I want to pray for us again before we dive into the Word. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. And Lord, we continue to pray uh, for your Holy Spirit to be among us. Lord, I pray for this time uh, that we are gathered together um, via video, uh, via uh, the internet. Uh, Lord, that, that you would anoint it. Lord, that, that whenever this video is being watched, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, to truly hear your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and ask that you would uh, nourish us, Lord, and sustain us with it uh, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in Judges. Uh, this is the last third of Judges, not really the third, but uh, it's, the, it's the final section of Judges. It's a pretty clear section. It's set apart, uh, chapter 17 through 21. And um, people call this an appendix sometimes to the book of Judges, but I think it's more integrated to the book than that. It's not simply an appendix, a collection of random stories. It's pretty clear that, that in this section, we are seeing something different than in uh, the previous section with, with the stories of the Judges and the cycle of sin. And we looked at, um, we looked at last week, we looked at uh, Deborah and Barak and the story of Jael. There's also the story of Gideon, the story of Samson, uh, lots of other great stories that, that, um, that exist alone and can stand alone as good stories. Uh, but what the whole book of Judges is doing is showing us what, uh, what it says here in the last section of Judges, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I read one commentary that said, in saying that, what it's saying in the early stages of the book is that in those days, the, the, you know, the book opens with the death of Joshua. And the whole book is sort of a lament for there is no Joshua in Israel. And there are 
glimpses and moments of salvation and deliverance. Remember, the, the name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. And there are brief moments in the lives of these judges that are moments of salvation and deliverance. But in those days, there's no Joshua. And so there's, there's both lamenting for what's, what's gone before, what's behind us, what's lost with the generation of Joshua. And there's um, sort of a yearning for a day in the future when there would be a king, when there would be a, a person to unite the tribes of Israel. Um, and so we've been through the section of the stories of the judges, uh, the cycle of sin, and we've seen how that was just a persistent thing. And now we come to a section where there aren't any judges, okay? This is not, this is not a story of deliverance. It's more a portraits and glimpses into just sort of the everyday life, um, a few snapshots of of society and culture uh, during the time of the judges. Um, if you remember, the, the, this book is not so much chronologically linear. It's not told as a sequential history. It's more episodic, meaning there are snapshots and, and, and different stories that, that, are, that are pieced together. And this last part is the same. This is uh, sometime during uh, the, the, the previous period of the judges, okay? Um, in chapter 17, well, let me, let me just say, let me say one more thing about this. The refrain here is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we first see that in chapter 17, verse 6. Um, I want to point out that the refrain in the previous section of Judges, chapters 3 through 16, all the stories of the Judges, there, there, there was a refrain that kept coming up there too. And I want to look at that real quick begins in chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, and so on. It says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, many of the stories of the judges, of the individual judges, begin with that refrain. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see it in, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 7. People of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so you could say that that portion of Judges is about what happens when the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, namely, and most significantly, idolatry. What is evil in the sight of the Lord? They abandoned Yahweh and they served the Baals, okay? Here in this final section, it says that they did what was right in their own eyes. And in some ways, we see in this section that doing what's right in your own eyes is almost worse than doing what's evil in God's eyes. It's sort of two sides of the same coin, doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord and doing what's right in your own eyes. We see what happens and we've seen many, many times in this cycle of doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. But here we have an interesting thing where there's not, um, there's not the gross idolatry that's happening. And it doesn't say they did what's evil inside of the Lord. It simply says they do what's right in their own eyes. Okay? And this is sort of a step beyond doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. 
okay, so we've sort of abandoned the Lord, but we have to do something. We have to make decisions. We have to live life. We have to have religion. And so we begin to proactively construct life. And this is what's happening here. They're proactively constructing life according to their own value system. Okay? And this is, this is what is called, and I think this is a significant uh, word, autonomy. And I want to unpack that word a little bit. Autonomy uh, is not just, uh, it, it's, you see, of, of like autonomous vehicles, right? It's not just something that does its own thing. It, uh, the, the, the meaning of the word is, is, is rich, okay? It's auto, meaning self, and uh, namos, which is a Greek word, which is the Greek word for law. So autonomy is being a law unto yourself or having a law of self, all right? And so we've moved, I would say that's even a step beyond doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Because when you do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, you're at least acknowledging his law, right? And you're not doing it. When, when, when people are doing what's evil, they are, as Paul would say, the works of the flesh are obvious, they're manifest, right? And it's sexual immorality, idolatry, all these things. What's even more insidious though, and I would say even more sinful, a step beyond doing what's evil inside of the Lord is doing what's right in your own eyes. And this is ultimately the life that the enemy has been trying to get the sons and daughters of God to embrace. A life that is autonomous, a law unto itself. And this is the life, this is so dangerous. This is the life that, that we as Americans are tempted constantly to live, an autonomous life. Not just what's evil in the sight of the Lord, not just breaking the rules, but actually building things and constructing things that are in our own image and that are after the law of ourselves. Okay, we see here in, the, in one of the stories, it says that Dan, they go and, and sack this city. They need a place to live, to, to put down uh, roots and build families. They, and they sack the city and they rename it Dan. <laughs> and this happens through the Old Testament. When someone is naming a city after themselves, they are being autonomous. They are, they are establishing their name, their way of life. Um, and so here we see, th these are snapshots of autonomy. And I would also say it is no coincidence that the most, uh, that the most heinous and, and atro atrocious uh, acts in the book of Judges appear in the section that is focused on autonomy, being a law unto yourself. And this is this, and so that's what it's about. That's what this section is about, autonomy. What, what are the effects of autonomy? And it, it examines it at several different layers of society, okay? And, the, and it, it opens with this guy, Micah, all right? He's, he's at home, um, not sure. <laughs> it says that, um, he had taken, there's this 1,100 pieces of silver, which by the way was the, the price that, that Delilah got paid uh, to, to trick Samson. I'm not sure how connected it is here. But the 1,100 pieces of silver, um, he, had, he had stolen them. But he sort of tells his mom that he has them um, or that he found them or something. And it's just kind of this twisted, ambiguous situation. Regardless, he says... Uh, he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, 
I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand, from my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. And in verse 6 it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah. And this is not the, this is not the only time we will hear of someone from Bethlehem in Judah. The, the concubine was from Bethlehem in Judah. And then when we get to the book of Ruth, Elimelech is from Bethlehem in Judah. So there's sort of this, this continual uh, reference to, to Bethlehem, which is a significant city uh, for us as Christians. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, so the, the young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the, the men departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And so, basically, Micah says, oh, you're a Levite. You're, you're, you're one of the real priests. Nice. You know, I've got, this, I've got these idols, and I would like for you to be my household priest. Verse 12, Micah ordained the Levite. First of all, so this is, this is autonomy at the very personal household level, okay? And I would say it's, it's, it's one of religion, okay? I've got this religion. I've got these things that, that I've constructed. I've, I've got it set up just how I want it. Now I've got a Levite coming, and I am ordaining him. Now, Micah just gave himself the right to ordain priests, okay? And this is very significant, right? It seems small, right? It seems harmless. Hey, we've got these shrines. We need, we need a religious thing. Uh, there's no king in Israel. Let's build an altar. Let's hire a Levite. Let's get a preacher in here. And then he even says, um, the Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Right? No true understanding of what God's heart really is. He just wants to get in good with God and says, you know, I think that God likes Levite priests. I'm going to get a Levite priest, bring him into my own home. All right. So autonomy at the, at the individual household level. Now we have it, uh, then, then Dan, the tribe of Dan comes along. All right. And to make a long story short, they take all the idols. Hey, we like those idols. We like that way of doing it. We're going to take them. And also we're going to take your Levite. And the Levite goes, hey, this is great. So this is like a, uh, a small town pastor. He gets called up by, by Southland or, or uh, Centenary. And then he's, hey, we've got, a, we've got a job opening for you. We heard you're a good preacher. Uh, we heard people around there like you. Come, we'll, we will, we'll pay you more. And uh, you get to preach in front of thousands of people instead of just uh, a few people. Okay, great. And so the Levite, because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, it's good for me. I'm going to do it. Um, and the tribe of Dan basically pulls a, uh, a mafia move here, right? They come, they sweep in, and uh, kind of <laughs> Micah and some of the, his neighbors start to say, hey, what are you doing? And they say, hey, you better go out. Uh, we're stronger than you. And um, so the Levite just goes. The Levite goes and serves the tribe of Dan. There is a great sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt, which is one of the best sermons I believe ever preached. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, you should go look it up. It's by Paris Reedhead, Ten Shekels in a Shirt. And it's about this section of scripture, and it's really good. Um, maybe I'll post a, I'll send a link out uh, in, the, in the email. So, uh, at the end of chapter 18, so they set up Micah's carved image that he made 
as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Back in Joshua 18, the house of the Lord, the tabernacle of the Lord, and it's referred to one, one other time in this section where they go up yearly to the house of Shiloh. That's, it's distant, right? We have to, we're, we're far away from the house of God. We're far away from the presence of God. So we need to do things in our own way and try. Uh, uh, Dan was the farthest tribe away from, uh, from Shiloh at this point. And it was the northern, one of the northernmost tribes. So they're in this, the further they get away, the more autonomous they are. All right. So then we get into chapter 19 and just the dreadful, uh, dreadful story here. Um, and, and the refrain repeats. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning. And so we have the story of, um, I, I think that this story comes at, at, at a very strategic point in this section of Judges. Uh, we've just seen how uh, in the religious realm, uh, Israel has become autonomous, right? The individuals in Israel and the families and the clans, they just are doing it, what, doing it the way that they want. Remember in Deuteronomy, it's when it says, when you get to the land, don't just worship the Lord wherever you think. Don't just set it up however you want. You figure out what the way that I tell you. You go to the place that I tell you and worship. And you worship in the way that I show you. Okay, well, none of that is going on. People are a law unto themselves. And this story, which the, the, the editor or author must have known is, is the most shocking one in the book of, of and, and the most uh, kind of sickening one in, in the book of Judges. Um, comes after we see this glimpse into this religious autonomy, okay? What happens when you start to just build, uh, build religion around your household, your way of life? What happens when you set up an altar the way that you want it? What happens when you hire a Levite and ordain him yourself uh, in the way that seems best to you? Well, here's the fruit of that. And this story comes right after the story of Micah and then the tribe of Dan. And I think what it's saying is that the life of Israel was always meant to revolve around the worship of God and, and sacrifices and, and true, uh, the true presence of God. Well, here they are way out in the outskirts, far away from the presence of God. And this is the kind of thing that is happening while people are making themselves feel good religiously, okay? While they are setting up their own idols. Meanwhile, things like this are happening. And this story, uh, the story of the, the Levite's concubine echoes of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Where they go down to the house of Lot and, and there's a cry in that city uh, to come out and, and have sexual immorality with the people who were... Um, being put up in Lot's house, the angels, really. Um, and uh, this is an intentional echo of that story. Why is that? Sodom and Gomorrah was the paradigm of a people who had lost their way. God had to send hailstones of fire down on the city. He couldn't even find 10 righteous people, although he saved Lot and his family. Uh, unfortunately, his wife didn't, uh, didn't make it. But it's the paradigm for a city turned away from God. 
All right, and here we see that a city in Israel has become the same way. Okay, it has become the same. This leads to a civil war, right? People point fingers. So the, the, the guy divides his concubine into 12 pieces and sent, sends her out to the 12 tribes. Um, he senses that, he, that there has been a grave injustice, okay? And he cries out for justice. But there's no justice to be found. He has to do what's right in his own eyes. How can I, how can I get vengeance for this? Well, I'm going to divide her into 12 pieces and send her to the 12 tribes of Israel. He, in his rage, devises some sort of twisted uh, way of getting the tribes of Israel attention to, to call attention to the injustice that has happened and the atrocity that's happened. But really, in doing that, he's adding atrocity to atrocity, right? Now he's trying to fix a problem, but he creates an even greater problem because then the 12 tribes come and say, what is going on? What, <laughs> this is, we've got a strange package in the mail. And I need you to tell us about it. Um, so he's, he incites all because this, uh, this episode with the, the Levite's concubine, it incites a civil war. And so we get all the way from Micah, is just his little, his little idols, his household idols, and he gets his little Levite. And we go all the way to civil war in, the, in this section of Judges. And I think one of the one of the uh, the effects of that, one of the, the intended effects of that, is for us to see how our private, how the private um, devotional life of of people of individuals in the in the, within the people of God, the private life, the way that we structure uh, our homes and our own individual lives. Um, is not isolated from society, right? This gets us back to the idea of when when Achan stole the silver. All of Israel was under the wrath of God because one guy took something and hid it in private, okay? Same thing, I think, with Micah uh, and his Levite, right? Um, once you start to uh, arrange all of life around you, uh, the effects of that are massive and they are dire. So we have this civil war and that's tragic, tragic in itself. But one of the striking things, I think, is there's constantly these, they're getting these, it's escalating and escalating, and they're getting into these situations where they're saying, well, now what should we do? Well, now what should we do? And now what should we do? And they keep coming up with solutions that are weird. And then there's this thing with the wives of Benjamin, and, and uh, it just gets really crazy. And they're, they're trying to, it, it, it's, like, <laughs> it's like big government, right? Well, let's fix this, fix this problem with this big solution. Well, that big solution created this problem over here, so let's go create this big problem over here and fix this problem with this big solution, all right? And I'm not trying to get political, but, it, but this is what happens, right? Life is complex. Life requires wisdom. Uh, fixing things requires wisdom. And the more you try and just address a problem in the moment, without consulting wisdom and without consulting God, you just end up creating more and more problems for yourself. And this is what we see in the nation of Israel, and it ends in utter chaos and anarchy, okay, uh, because of autonomy. 
When people are a law unto themselves, society completely unravels. There is no center. Uh, this is like, uh, sounds like a Yeats poem, right? The center cannot hold, all right? Um, the last verse of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All right, so why the emphasis on a king? When we get into 1 Samuel, we're going to see the people ask God for a king, uh, but Samuel and God, neither of them are too thrilled about that. Um, and at that point, it doesn't seem to be like the king is the answer to everything. But if we look back in the law, in Deuteronomy, in 17, chapter 17, we actually see something about uh, that, that, that kings were, that there was a, a, a sense that kings were in Israel's future at some point. Um, it says, uh, chapter 17, verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, which is what they say in 1 Samuel, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Um, and in, in verse 18 it says this, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. In those days there was no king. What was the vision for a king in Israel? Someone who would day and night meditate on the law, do the law, keep it, it says, and do it, and keep the nation of Israel in a state of the fear of God, which is the opposite of autonomy. Keep the law of God, the way of life that he has declared, keep that at the center of the nation. And the, the, one of the primary roles of the king, it's, it's, it's a lot like the primary role of the President of the United States to uphold the Constitution of the United States. A king was to uphold the law, to bring the law at the center, so that individuals were not at the center of Israel. That, that autonomy did not rule, but God's law ruled, and God's law uh, brought justice. And I want to read so we're going to go through, once we get to 1 Samuel, we're going to talk a lot about the kingdom and, and what a king is. Um, but I want to read Psalm 72 as sort of a, a picture of what Israel, during the time of the judges, particularly during this time when there's no king in Israel, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, a vision for what a king could bring to a people like that. Psalm 72 Give the king your justice, O God. There's so much injustice in Judges, and that's one of the reasons why it doesn't sit well with us. These awful things happen, and then there's, 
there's not really justice that happens as a result. There's retaliation, there's reaction, but there's no justice. And it's, it's left hanging. Well, here, right here, and this is uh, Psalm 72. It's a Psalm of Solomon, all right? Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. This is what, this is what the land was crying out for in the book of Judges. And it never saw because there was no king in Israel. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. There's justice. There's, there's the legal uh, aspect of, of kingship. But then there's the defense, the, the, the protection of the people, right? That was another issue. They had gotten themselves into oppressive situations with the nations around them. And this says to crush the oppressor, we need someone to rise up and lead the people in victory. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The beautiful picture of that the king is a conduit of blessing and thriving uh, into the people and into the very land itself. It talks about crops, right? Agriculture, right? The king was to be a channel of God's blessing into the earth. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and all the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall be- down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls and the poor and him who has no helper. And I, would, I just think of, you know, in the context of Judges, her who has no helper. Right? That poor concubine. The, this, one of the saddest sights in all of the Bible is this concubine laying on the threshold of the floor. And the, uh, the, the Levite saying, uh, get up, it's time to go. For he didn't even realize that she was dead. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. There's a lot of bloodshed in the book of Judges. And this psalm paints a picture of a king who's, uh, in, in whose sight the, the blood of his people is precious. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of corn in the land because of the king, not because of the gods of the land, not because of the Baals, the ruler, the lords of the area. On tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, not just until as long as the judge lived and then passed away, right? And then the people, people go back to their old ways, but may his name endure forever. 
May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. And here we get to the, all the way back to the promise of Abraham, the covenant with Abraham. He's going to bless him, make his name great, uh, make, uh, give him uh, many nations, many children, and through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. All right, so there's a cry for a king. And they're going to get their king, but, it's, but first, God's going to have to deal with them for the rebellion again and give them Saul, uh, a, king who is, um, a king who is right in their eyes. Okay, Saul is a king that they pick for themselves and say, this man, he's taller than everyone else. And so, uh, yes, God wants to bring a king to Israel, obviously. Um, this is one of the great pictures is what, what, what Messiah is, is the anointed king of Israel. Uh, but the people want a king and they want to pick what the king is to look like. So God gives them a king in Saul. And we'll talk about that when we get to 1 Samuel. But he's a king that's right in the people's eyes. But there is one that God looks at and he says, this is the man after my heart and I'm going to anoint him. And that is David. So this portion of scripture is really the bridge from uh, Joshua to David. Okay. Uh, And we we are anticipating David all the time. Uh, And and in anticipating David, we're ultimately, as Christians, we are anticipating Christ. Okay. The Christ king of God, the king of Israel. Jesus is the one that Psalm 72 is talking about. He is the one that that brings justice into the land. He is the one that causes his people to prosper. All right. So the warning of the book of Judges is that autonomy brings utter chaos and destruction into the earth. Autonomy. All right. Not, uh, not anarchy, not uh, political violence, but just autonomy, right? Just doing what seems best to you has disastrous results, okay? And this is not a new story in Scripture. This is a, this is a story that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do it the way that seems best to you. Eat the fruit if it seems good to you, Eve, Talk about disastrous results. Autonomy. Just do it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. If it seems good, do it. So we move from doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord to doing what's right in our own eyes. And that is not a step in the right direction. It is a step beyond doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And it it builds the city that's named after us. It builds the city of man. And that's a city of bloodshed and violence and injustice. Um, And the king is coming. The king comes to bring all of that back to to one of the, I love one of the first things David does is he establishes the, the, the center of the people at Jerusalem. He establishes the capital and the center of Jerusalem. He builds this glorious temple where there is worship happening all the time and the presence of God is being sought and rejoiced in. That is the way that the people of God is structured. They revolve their lives around submission and worship and being a sacrifice unto God and then go out and live their lives in response to who he is and the way that he uh, has, has desired for us to live. 
So that's where we are. Um, and I want to challenge you to allow God to search your heart for autonomy, uh, for ways in which you just do things. It's not evil in the sight of God, so you think. But you just do things because, well, you got to do something. Instead of seeking the face of God and asking Him, how do you want me to do this? How do you want me to uh, structure my day? How do you want me to talk to my children? How do you want me to um, raise my kids? How do you want me to educate my children? Um, if, if we just do what's right in our own eyes, and I would include, and you have to hear this, I would include things that we think the people around us would want us to do that's still doing something that's right in your own eyes. Ways that you think you're supposed to do it, that's doing what's right in your own eyes. That's not seeking the face of God. Everything that we do should be seeking the face of God. If you're looking around at the people around you, and I know that there are wise people around that we want to model our lives off of, but if you're, if you're looking around and comparing yourself and trying to do things according to what you see around you, that's doing what's right in your own eyes. And that has disastrous results uh, for the people of God. Um, so this is good. Scripture is for us, right? The book of Judges is for us. It's our book. Um, it was written for us as an example upon whom the end of the ages have come. Uh, and so in these days of <laughs> greater, uh, greater independence from each other, or greater, uh, not independence, but greater distance from each other physically, um, there could be a lot of temptations to uh, just do something that seems right to you. But in these days, more than ever, we've got to seek the face of God and ask Him and submit our lives to Him and respond to His Word in our lives and not to what's uh, simply right in our own eyes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, give us, uh, let the wisdom of your Scripture go deep down inside of us and let it take root. Uh, Lord, we don't want to be autonomous in any way. We know that we are groomed uh, in every way by the American society, the American culture, uh, to be autonomous, uh, to, to be a law unto ourselves. Uh, but we want to reject, uh, reject that as the people of God and embrace, Lord, uh, your lordship in our lives, your rulership. And Lord, we see not just, we don't just want to embrace your rulership in some uh, servile way, but we truly see that when you rule, when your law is the law of the land, there is flourishing, there is blessing. Lord, there is life and goodness and flourishing. And so we desire that, Lord, as your people and pray that you would start with us. Lord, help us to start with our own minds, Lord, to capture every thought that exalts itself against you and bring it into subjection to you, King Jesus. Uh, Lord, help us not to look around and, and see all the other ways in which people do what's right in their eyes before we look deep within our hearts and see the, the, the lives that we've carved out for ourselves, even on the inside, Lord, uh, where no one can see and where it seems fine. It's just, a, it's just an idol. It's just a Levite. And the Lord's going to be happy with me now that I have my Levite. Lord, far be it from us. We want to be a people totally surrendered to you. Uh, we want to be a people whose king is Jesus. And we pray that in the name of King Jesus. Amen.